I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to B. Lund, Dan, Justin, Galen, Chance, Matthew Ho, Elliot, Tom, Ishtifer, Arlen, Bo, Gunner, James, Chase, Martin, Gary, Emilia, Nick, Brace, Michael, Nobody, Brian, and John. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we have a double feature. Later on in the show, we'll be speaking with psychedelic author Daniel Pinchbeck about his recent article, which you can read at Who, What, Why, entitled Why Psychedelic Capitalism Sucks, dealing with the problems and dangers of for-profit psychedelic corporations and startups. But first, longtime friend of the show, Mike Swanson of WallStreetWindow.com joins us to discuss the FTX crypto scandal and Elon Musk's Twitter takeover. Very timely conversation. I want to get right to it. So here it is, my conversation with Mike Swanson of Wall Street Window. Welcome back to Parallax Views, friend of the show, Mike Swanson of WallStreetWindow.com. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Great to talk with you and, and all your listeners, too. So, Mike, I guess what I wanted to have you on to talk about was this crazy FTX, SBF scandal. Maybe you just could just give the brief rundown uh, of what you understand to be the scandal itself, and then we can launch off into some other topics. Yeah, sure. So this has been dominating the financial media. Um, it's the second biggest crypto exchange. It was based in the Bahamas, run by this guy named Sam Bankman Freed. People are calling him SBF. And it's gone under. And around, I, I'm trying to get the exact figures, but it's hard to find. But it sounds like a little bit less than $10 billion 
in assets were what they had of people, you know, of crypto accounts and uh, millions of people around the world. Um, and he was running what he called Alameda Research, some sort of trading firm uh, at the same time and taking customers' money and trying to trade and invest it. And that firm, you know, lost a lot of money in the summertime. And now there's two stories going on about, about this. Well, first of all, the customers, you know, their accounts, they can't withdraw their money. I know someone, uh, I think you interviewed him, David Skarika. He told me a friend of his had just contacted him a couple of days ago saying that he lost all his money uh, in this thing. Uh, now, to me, you know, this is a symptom of crypto being real risky. This isn't the first exchange to go under, but it's certainly the biggest one. Now, I, before talking with you, I went to see the current headlines and this SBF guy sent a letter out to the employees. Uh, the company's in bankruptcy. A new CEO has taken over that was one of the top lawyers of the Enron bankruptcy. So this guy is not running the company anymore. And he sent this letter to the employees apologizing and claiming that uh, it was essentially a bank run, that uh, a bunch of the assets were invested in his research firm, but he didn't know what was going on, is what he's arguing. And the, the firm lost 50% of its value. And that caused what he's describing as a run on the bank being FTX. Now this lady put the tweet out with the letter and then she's tweeting or commenting, oh, this doesn't sound like fraud. And then other people are joining in this and saying, well, you got donations from this guy for your startup and you're just, you know, being a shill for him. And that's, I mean, I don't, it does sound like that because when I go read uh, the other stories going on, the Wall Street Journal had an article this morning uh, about this lawyer that's taken over the company. And he's described this as uh, assets that have been stolen uh, from FTX or missing. Uh, in fact, uh, just as this was going on last week, uh, there was going under, the FTX company claimed that it had been hacked for millions of dollars in assets. So that sounds like, was that an inside job? Was that stolen? Very suspicious. And that's what's happened with some smaller instances of other crypto exchanges uh, that have gone under. So oh, this has it, happened before in a way on a smaller scale? Oh yeah, lots of smaller, tinier exchanges. So to me, it's like nothing new. To me, you're really full. I mean, it's sad. Um, and it's full. To me, these aren't banks. You know, these are, they're not re really regulated at all uh in a meaningful way there's no fdic insurance and so it's sort of crazy to me to think you're gonna someone's gonna put all their money in there but some people have and you know i went and looked to i've been thinking myself this is comparable to what happened in 2002 uh there was a the stock market was in a bear market that started in 2000 but as that bear market continued, uh, things, scandals appear, companies blow up. And so to me, that that's what this is probably a symptom of. Uh, but 
in that year, Enron and WorldCom were the big scandals. And I went and looked, and in World Enron was a $64 billion company that did fraud and went under in a period of months. WorldCom was even bigger. But this thing, even though it's a smaller size in, in the money involved, it may have a bigger cultural impact because Enron and, and WorldCom, they were stocks that were widely owned and dispersed throughout mutual funds. And, you know, so, so it wasn't like, except for people who, a few people had all their money in, let's say, Enron. Uh, that one really sticks in my mind because they had a, a retirement program. They're putting all their employees in this Enron stock and they lost everything. But this thing is is probably impacting on a personal level, wiping out financially a lot more people around the world because these crypto people, you know, some of them put all their money in this kind of stuff and they're, 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 they're gone. They're, they're finished for them. So that, and then the other comment, one other point about this I'd like to make too is um on one hand, this is to me a symptom of, you know, financial bubble that's that's going down like the 2000s were. Um, and one of the stories about this um, is there's a giant venture capital fund called Sequoia Capital, perhaps the most famous of these technology funds in the world. It's worth billions of dollars. They were one of the startup early backers of Apple, Google, Airbnb, I believe Facebook. Um, I mean, they've been around forever and they lost $150 million in this thing. And that's wild. Yeah. 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 And this is what's crazy about it. So they issued a letter um, apologizing for investing in this thing. And they said they failed to do their due diligence that they didn't understand the connection between this Alameda research and FTX. And here's what's amazing. Um, they failed to examine their uh, financial statements, which they normally would do. Um, and it turns out FTX had kind of like a very small, tiny, unusual auditing firm <laughs> that hardly anyone else uses. So this is a big failure, Sequoia Capital, and they're apologizing it. But the important thing about why that matters is that to me is symptomatic of how this whole financial system, the stock market, crypto, all this stuff became such a bubble in the past couple of years after 220, uh, you know, that whole rally in particular, that the whole reason why a company like Sequoia Capital would make this sort of mistake is that they're scared to miss out or they couldn't find other hot investments and, 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 and failed, you know, to do what they normally would do. Uh, so that that's the current you know news as I'm understanding it with, with what's going on here. Yeah, I also saw a a, a news article about I think you sent it to me about I, I guess uh, Bankman Fried was referred to as 
running F- FTX's own personal fiefdom by a lawyer for the case. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the one that's in the Wall Street Journal this morning. And from the that I mean, this story is kind of probably for some people, this is all they're looking at, you know. I mean, there's probably listeners that know more about this than the, the details that we do, but from my from what I've gathered, this guy was living in the Bahamas in a big mansion with close to 10 other people living with him. And the lifestyle that they had over the years, like it sounds like they were having a, a, a just orgies and you know, all kinds of stuff. It, it, it sounds on. like some John McAfee type stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, or, or even worse. I, I mean, they're not killing people or being accused of that, but it's a uh, like a cult, you know, is what it sounds like. So I, I'm curious because I think Wall Street Window and Parallax Views, we, we may have slightly different audiences um, in the sense of like, I, th- I think a lot of more libertarian oriented voices may read Wall Street Window people that are into investment and stocks. Um, and I, I think my audience may be a little bit more left leaning. Um, but why do you think there's a convergence in some ways between, you know, I saw Ryan um, McMacken from Mises was talking about this whole FTX scandal and how bad it was. I see a lot of libertarian voices that are kind of uh, upset about this, but I also see the left-wing voices like um, Jacob Silverman and Ben McKenzie, who are actually writing a very good book on the topic of cryptocurrency and fraud. Why do you think there's a convergence between maybe left and right uh, a bit on this issue of cryptocurrency, or at least libertarians and the left? Well, um, I can probably answer that my own you know learning about about the financial system perhaps um when i started trading in the 90s i believed it was a bubble when it blew up but one of the voices i was really listening to at, at that time to help me understand what was going on was ron paul and he made a really simple argument uh, which is stuff that Murray Rothbard would have wrote, written, you know, wrote and other libertarians before him about the Federal Reserve that they create bubbles by lowering interest rates too much, and that was the explanation Rob Paul gave about the finan- the internet bubble. And he would talk to Alan Greenspan and say these things, and uh, other financial people I was following you know, uh, made similar arguments. And, and it made a lot of sense to me that when the Fed low, keeps rates too low, it makes, it makes um, if the stock market goes up too much, then people, investors, traders, they have a hard time finding investments that make sense based on fundamentals. So then they be, they start to rationalize buying stuff based on, price appreciation only, they get caught up in bubbles, which is kind of the Sequoia Capital quote, uh, or, you know, thing I was talking about. Now, the thing about it, though, is time went on. Um, in, and I've, I've always read people, you know, I've read a little bit of Karl Marx. I've read a lot of libertarians. I've, you know, I've, I've read all sorts of things over the years. But as time went on in these markets, um, I came to, and I'm not, so I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what the left-wing people that you're talking about are, are actually saying. I'm curious, but 
I started to believe that while Rump, the libertarian argument about interest rates is correct, that there's also something else going on. Um, and that is that there's actually, for some reason, too much capital that's been generated by the capitalist system or companies or, um, and as a result, that's also driving interest rates down. It's, it's, it's too much capital in the system and, and it's supply and demand things. It's not just simply the Fed making mistakes, but something in, really wrong with the system itself um, that's been happening and, and, get, and getting worse in my view. Um, and, 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 um, and that's an argument that, you know, that, that's not on the, that's not on the right. That's more of a left-wing, yeah, I mean, that's a Marxist argument, basically. Um, and funny thing, if you listen to someone like, it, it, it's very difficult to understand what he's always saying. And I don't like the guy when I bring his name up I, I agree with him on his political views. But if you listen to some of the arguments or videos of Peter Thiel, he has made this argument a couple of times. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. In a way that, you know, it's very strange. It sounds kind of obscure. And he's he's had a fund manager that's coming in the alternative financial media space um, that's made, you know, they don't they will never you know, they don't use Marx's name. But he's made this argument that there is unlimited money being created in the financial system. And that's why the stock market won't crash. Now, now he, he, still, he appeared like two years ago. Now it's in a bear market. So I don't necessarily, it doesn't exactly, it is falling, you know. However, he, I believe he's correct that there is, there is I mean, the statistics show it. There's new money coming in. In, in, and it's amazing to me that this is happening and it's slowing down the bear market or prolonging it. Um, it so it is different than the past two. And, and that's something that, you know, it, it's very, you know, it's happening. It's hard. To, it's hard to understand all these things, exactly why it's, you know, it's a lot of theory. But what are the people, uh, you you know, the, on the left that you are hearing? What's their kind of take on all this? Well, I guess I just meant that I, I was more referring to crypto. Uh, it okay. seems like oh, there's, okay. there, there's, but the, the points you brought up are very interesting. But I guess I, I see voices like journalist Jacob uh, Silverman, uh, Ben McKenzie, um, and I'm blanking on the name of their book. They're going to hate me for for not mentioning it, but um, it's coming out soon. Uh, but I see voices like that saying crypto is BS. And then I see Ryan McMacken saying, you know, there's problems with crypto. And I think one of the shifts on the libertarian end is uh, big against crypto as well, right? Who is who? Peter Schiff. Uh, yeah, Peter Schiff. Oh, yeah, or, yeah, yeah, or his, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I would say the the libertarian movement has been divided on crypto. Right, with, right. There, there's some that are big support. Yeah, I think yeah, Schiff's yeah. son is a big supporter. Yeah, so yeah. like there's the documentary. Oh, what's it called on HBO? It's worth watching. It's called The Anarchist. And oh yeah, that's about the they wanted to start Anarchapulco in uh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. That's, that's, yeah, yeah. it's great it, people it's entertaining it's it's really good but that's like the libertarian crypto world all coming to that conference Jeffrey Tucker was there and he he was big in crypto for a couple of years and um but what's what I think in the in the libertarian world is the divide is really about 
is crypto the solution to to this finance, you know, as an investor or whatever, or is gold and silver? And I'm more in the I'm in the gold and silver camp. And a lot of those people that like Peter Schiff, they think, you know, I do too. Crypto is just a bubble. It's baloney. It's not anything that the people, you know, claim. And, you know, and I don't think it is. Uh, uh, but um, to me, it's a symptom of, I mean, that's a whole other discussion. I can go on and on and on of um, the overall trading world, how it's evolved over the over over time, and particularly the last couple of years of Robinhood and meme stocks. And so to me, it's all the same. You know, it's just people spec that were speculating and chasing and, and now they're losing money and things are blowing up. And, you know, and, and this is an example of it. Could you uh, just to dig a little bit deeper into that? Like what, what made you skeptical of things like crypto and Robin hood and meme stocks and, and things of that nature? Like what's your big argument for, Hey, maybe we should be more skeptical of this. Well, I mean, I mean, it's my own experience because uh, I've been doing this uh, since the 90s and I was in graduate school in 1998, 90, and the internet stock bubble was going crazy. And that's when I started to, to trade heavily as a, as a student when I was, I was a history student, graduate school, and I was living in Charlottesville, Virginia. And there's a company called Value America, and they IPO'd on the stock market, and the stock was trading at fifty dollars a share, and it was like just a website you can buy stuff on, and and these were like the crypto things of today, all these crypto coins, but they're stocks, they're companies, and this thing was on CNBC, it was worth all this money, and one day I was going to the DMV. And I saw the headquarters and it was just some guy's house. And then uh, by happenstance, I was eating lunch with one of the graduate students. I was, you know, one of the fellow students. And he said, oh, I'm at my church, uh, one of the board members of Value America is there. And he's saying it's a fraud, <laughs> it's basically. So, so I was skeptical of, of that bubble when I saw it happen. And the crypto and, and, and meme stocks, it's the same thing. And in the end, the the these things all there is an underlying uh, with stocks, there's an under there's a company underlying the stock. And you know, you you're paying for earnings, you're paying for prospects of the future. And if it's all overvalued or hype, then you're just in a you can if you don't if you don't understand it's a bubble you're gonna you're gonna lose a lot of money but we're in a funny moment that it's so big like the past couple of weeks there's there's is there's the there's so many interesting things happening ftx is going on um you know we've, we've got elon musk and twitter that it looks like well he did he bought it at a bad price, at a bubble valuation, basically, and that's. What's yeah, I'm still amazed that he bought Twitter for like what forty four billion. Because to me, yeah. it was just like that was a ridiculous move on his part. I'm like, why would you do? Well, he got trapped. Um, he he tried to 
buy he tried he tried to buy it and, and withdraw his offer and then legally they forced him into buying it or he'd have to pay him even more money so um i mean it's it's and they're losing so well, i don't know how much they're gonna lose but they lost 200 million last year and now they have to pay a billion a year because he took on all his debt to buy it but at the same time that that's happening, Facebook's going down. Uh, its revenue is, I'm not saying it's going bankrupt, but Mark Zuckerberg's under fire um, from investors. He said, you know, he's losing all this money in this metaverse thing, which uh, the re- reports are that no, the, the, the people developing the thing don't like to use it that they get headaches when they use the goggles and yeah yeah and of course zuckerberg just just late there was like a massive layoff at meta yeah yeah yeah. so so it's that so there's layoffs at twitter but there's layoffs at facebook there's layoffs at uh amazon um so to me it's also an interesting cultural moment because i go back does it remind you it reminds you a lot of the dot-com bubble in a way yeah yeah and, and it's interesting too because it reminds me very much of it. And like I said, I was in college in, in, you know, during that bubble and I had no interest in it, but people were told, look, if you want to make a lot of money, go to California, go to San Francisco, go to these tech companies. If you, you know, want to make a lot of money and, and and then uh, Bill Gates was in the '90s. He was like worshipped uh, as the great tech visionary. Then he stepped back, and then it was Steve Jobs, um, and and Elon Musk has fashioned himself as that type of person. Uh, so, so to me, it's like this has been a trend my whole my you know since I was 20 years old, I guess. Of Silicon Valley is the the hot thing in the economy. Uh, go west. But now I wonder if that if that's with these firings and all this, if that's actually uh, coming to an end, you know, culturally. So I I should mention this because uh, I, I mentioned this book earlier, but the book by uh, Ben McKenzie and Jacob Silverman, uh, and Ben McKenzie of all people is a a television actor from the OC, but he has <laughs> written a book uh, that's coming out in July 2023 called Easy Money: Cryptocurrency, Casino Capitalism. And the golden age of fraud. Um, and I guess their contention, and I, I want to know what you think of this. They see this whole crypto thing as being a perfect storm of 2008 housing bubble level irresponsibility and criminal fraud potentially 10 times more devastating than Bernie Madoff. But how do you feel about like that that kind of assessment of this? Well, uh it's different. I, I don't think it. I, I don't think it's as big as it's going to hurt the economy as big. Uh, you know, I don't think it's like that because it is going to hurt like individual. I mean, people yeah, have already lost gonna, everything. It, yeah, that, I think that's what they're referring to more. Yeah, yeah. it's going to hurt millions of people that are caught up in this thing and believing in it. Uh, there's no doubt about that. I, th- I think it's the behavior is probably more fraud. I think the behavior is more fraudulent. Like the people behind this crypto, you know, these different crypto exchanges that have gone under and there's a lot more scammers and fraudsters and deliberate fraudsters, I would say, you know, with, then it was with the banking problems, not trying to dismiss them, but 
uh, in, in some ways, that was a bigger problem in 2008. But I, I think the criminality is much more blatant uh, in the crypto world. Well, there's no regulation or anything. Yeah, yeah, because of that. Um, and also, I, I want to one thing about this these financial markets and why why it's like uh, why it's a little it's different culturally than it was in 2008 or when I started trading is that. It, I think this has to do with the, uh, the way we consume information on the internet. Uh, so much of it, um, I, I believe, is you know a stream of endless information on Twitter. You go TikTok is a good example. If someone, if you're not using TikTok, go on there and just look at it, and you'll see a version of what you're experiencing in a new way. Uh, on Twitter and Facebook and these social sites, but this is how so many people get their information. And you know, when they promote the when they were promoting these crypto coins on advertise with advertisements and on, on YouTube, just the way that people talk about them, and even the meme stocks, it was like pure hype. It is like you know, it's sort of like what carny barkers do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I didn't really. You know, didn't I'm 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 so I've been doing it too long to I believe I'm immune to that kind of language. To me, it yeah, this is scammy. You know, but if I don't know anything, um, I then I can see how people can fall for it. And yeah, I was I, gonna say. I mean, I I've always I dislike when people say, "Well, these are like the people who get sucked into crypto are just dumb dumbs and they deserve it." I really don't like that attitude because I can see why people. Uh, get pulled into this type of thing, especially with all the hype around it. Well, for sure. And 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 if you and if you're on YouTube or fate or wherever, and these things are showing you endless videos about how this is great, you're going to believe it easily. And I saw a video on there uh, that made me think of it this way. <laughs> and this was a guy in Las Vegas. Uh, I just did. Uh, I go to, anyway. It was about a, a guy that's a gambling addict losing all his money on slot machines. Okay, and he's making a documentary of himself going into the casinos and you know losing money, borrowing money. And one of the times that he went into the casino, or he's talking about it, he says, "Well, I go in there, and on the wall they have pictures of the people that won on the slot machines." you know, a million dollars, 500,000, whatever. And he says, all I got to do is keep playing. All I got to do is keep playing and, and, and I can win. And that's how they advertise the lottery. And that's how they've advertised crypto coins in, in this, in stock trading, frankly, over, over the past couple of years. And it used to not be that way. It is but, very casino like in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. They, and, and they've created, and, and people don't, but people don't know that. They don't realize, you know, that, that's how people really get fooled. You know, if you go in a casino, you know you're in a casino. I mean, you, to, to be as delusional as that guy was in the video, you're really in, in trouble. But um, with this, you know, it's a new, you know, and it's not new now, but it was new to people. Crypto, it's a new thing. It was a new thing a couple of years ago and a new concept um that makes you think well i gotta know what it is it's easy to put your guard down 
and and believe it. And and that's what happened to and people still believe it. You know, the guy I told you that contacted my buddy David Skarika, he said there's nothing wrong with crypto. It's just that FTX wasn't doing it right. <laughs> it's, just, it's still, you know, what do you have to do to not believe? You know? Yeah, it's interesting because the thing I always hear when I criticize crypto, because I've had friends that are into crypto, and they're like, well, people always say this about the new thing, that it's just a scam or a Ponzi scheme. But how can you prove that? And I'm like, I, I don't know. Why does this keep happening over and over? Like, it just keeps crashing. I mean, the other thing is, I mean, it is true. I, you can make money off this crypto exchange. But there's a high risk that you're going to lose everything, too. Yeah, no, there's no doubt. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Uh, You can short it. You could go long. You could do all. I mean, it's. But if you hold it uh, forever, I don't think you're going to do very well. What do you think all of this means for maybe the future of things like crypto or even stocks? Because I know you and David uh, Skarika were talking about how a lot of younger people, I guess, and millennials aren't doing stock trading, really. They're, they're, they're not. Or they're doing it less or they're more wary of oh, it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, honestly, um, I mean, <laughs> I, we both, me and him are both bearish on the stock market, but there was a mania, you know, of people trading in the stock market after, you know, in 2020, 2021. Millions of accounts. This is like I think Robinhood had like twenty million accounts, and I mean, people would call me on the phone, you know, trading for the first time, and almost everyone has wiped out. So the Robinhood statistics show, you know, in their earnings reports that you know the the their amount of trades going through their brokerage is now what it was before that boom happened. So. My my worry about to answer your question, what's going to happen is um, that I think over time, uh, and I think this is what's going to happen to Bitcoin, but over time that there's going to be fewer and fewer of these people trading. And at some point, there'll almost be none, that they're just going to lose interest. They're going to lose money and give up and, and give up on it all. And and then they'll be done with it. Um, I think but they're going to be more skittish because of everything that's happening yeah, now, yeah. And being afraid to get scammed. Yeah, yeah, that's what's going to happen. I mean, there's people I know. Well, I met. Well, I learned and did okay, did good, frankly, in 2000. You know, most people did not. You know, uh, they 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 tried to day trade and they lost their money, and you know, and just regular investors. I know, have met, knew several people that tried to trade. And, and lost, never did again. And other people that just regular investors that lost in 2008 got out of the stock market and never got back in again. So that, that's what'll happen. But I, I think this cycle is going to be even worse for, for the amount of people that, you know, are, are just going to be gone forever. Uh, I, I really think it's, <laughs> it's so it, it, do you think do you think this will be the end of crypto this uh FTX scandal or do you think we're you know we're we're still going to see more of this type well, of Well I I think the end of crypto is just going to be less people using it less people interested in it and it just Yeah but of, will this be the thing that breaks the camel's back with that Uh I I would think so yeah I, I 
I, I would think so. I mean, the Robinhood back has been the 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 phenomenal Robinhood trading has been broken. So this is probably breaking this. That would make sense to me. Yeah. Just to reiterate, um, yeah. Why were you able to know that Robinhood was going to be a problem? Um, because we've talked about that before, but for newer listeners. Um. Well, I mean, it, to me, to me, it, this very similar to the stock market bubble that I saw with internet stocks in the two thousands. Um, and one, one, you know, it, very similar. I mean, um, for example, one of the stock brokerage houses back then, they would show you a list of all the top stocks people bought every day, you know, rank, you know, whatever, 20 of them. And I was tracking it and people were just losing money. And Robinhood did, was, uh, I think they, they changed it, but they were doing the same thing, showing you the top 100 stocks everyone owns. And you could track them and see them. People were like hurting into these stocks. Because um, the thing about the Robinhood app, if you opened it up, there's no real information on, on to help you figure out what to do. Just this list. So literally, it's just a list of what everyone else is doing. So that creates a hurting type behavior. And that's just not, you know, that that's going to lead to a disaster. And that's basically what happened to these people. Before closing out, maybe you could talk a little bit about, you mentioned that you're more trusting in gold. Uh, so why is that? Maybe, because I always hear people use the line, oh, you're just a gold bug when it comes to some of these libertarians. So I want to give you a chance to uh, address that, I guess. Yeah, well, first of all, you know, there is I'm not I'm not one of the people that's going to say put all your money in gold, or put all your money in, in silver, which some people a lot of people will do that. But um, I uh, try to explain it this way. I mean, I um, I lost half my money in 2014 and <clears throat> I went and looked at, because of that experience how to not, I didn't want to replicate that again. And one of the takeaways I took was to be diversified. Don't put all your money in something. And gold in a portfolio um, provides a diversification function against um, the US dollar and, and the bond market falling. And I think both of those are long-term risks uh, for financial investors. So to me, it provides a, a, a function in my portfolio now. I'm not trying to buy it to get rich quick, so to speak. So it's a bit different than the, um, I mean, as you said, there are the people that are like, no, put all your money into gold. Yeah, yeah, You're yeah. a bit different. You're, okay, yeah. Yeah, I, I tell you, I, I met a guy in a bar uh, in January where I live. I mean, this is how I, I really think this is the internet programming people and, you know, make just the language of way people think, you know, I was telling this guy, I like gold and silver and, and don't like Bitcoin probably. And he says, Oh, you like silver. And I said, yeah, he goes, well, how much do you think it'll go up this year? And I said, I don't know, <laughs> maybe go to $30 or something. I don't know. It's like 21 right now. And he goes, oh, it's going to go to 2000. And he was serious. I mean, that's how people, you know, it's just not like that. You know, it's kind of crazy.
Yeah, that's an interesting point too, because I think with with regards to the internet sort of programming people in a weird way, this I think people get inside like their own little internet bubbles, their little social media yeah. groups, and they don't really read anything outside of their niche like group, and it becomes very cultish very quickly. Yeah, yeah, that's what this guy did. He told he told me, well, I'm watching this. Have you ever heard of this this guy? I said, no. Here's the video. I go home and watch it. It's some guy talking crazy about conspiracies of something. And I don't know. Okay. Almost like a guru character. Yeah. We're yeah. almost looking for the guru. Yeah. And there's so many of them, you know? So in closing, uh, is there anything you want to say to put a bow on this conversation about SFX, crypto, and, and the like? Uh, what do you want people to get out of this conversation, I guess? Yeah. I'd, I'd just like to recommend people read a book. <laughs> and it's free. I got a link in the email I sent you on the bottom. Uh, it's the last link. It's called uh, Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular, Popular Delusions in the Madness of Crowds, written in 1845. And it's about just people going nuts. It's got a chapter about witches, you know, just, just social manias. But the first three chapters are about financial bubbles. And this stuff we're talking about isn't new. And that's one of the first books that ever writ, wrote about it, and it's entertaining. So I, read that to, to free yourself from hype. <laughs> and how can my listeners uh, keep up with the work you're doing at Wall Street Window? Well, I'll just go to the website, go to wallstreetwindow.com, and I put out a free news digest every morning, the top headlines today I'm looking at, and there's a button at the on the nav bar to subscribe to that. And you do like a mix of... Um... You do a mix of news. A lot of it's focused on local stuff in, I think, Danville, Virginia, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And also the the the, the stock market and etc. Yeah, I just kind of made the website everything I'm interested in <laughs> instead of just stocks. Okay, sounds good. Uh, and also, uh, people should check out your books. Yeah, the War State. Let's start with that one. It's on on Amazon. Well, thank you again, Mike Swanson of WallStreetWindow.com, for coming on Parallax Views. Thank you, Greg Tolley. Next up, we're going to be joined by Daniel Pinchbeck, the author of a number of books on psychedelics, including Breaking Open the Head, and most recently with Sophia Rocklin, When Plants Dream, Ayahuasca, Amazonian Shamanism, and the Global Psychedelic Renaissance. I found out through Russ Baker's Who, What, Why journalism website that Daniel had an article out recently entitled Why Psychedelic Capitalism Sucks. We'll be discussing that and much more in the conversation to follow. So with that in mind, let's get right to it with Daniel Pinchback. Welcome to Parallax Views. Daniel Pinchbeck, an author within the psychedelic community who has written a number of books over the years, including Breaking Open the Head, How Soon Is Now, and most recently, When Plants Dream, uh, with anthropologist Sophia Rocklin. Um, and Daniel is here to talk with us about a piece he wrote. I believe it was originally in your newsletter, uh, but I came across it through my friends at whowhat.org entitled Why Psychedelic Capitalism Sucks. How are you doing today, Daniel? 
I'm doing good, sir. How are you doing? Very good, very good. And I guess the place we should start is uh, for people that don't know, what, what do we mean when we say psychedelic capitalism or when we talk about uh, the rise of, I guess, psychedelic corporations, if people are unfamiliar with this subject? Sure. Well, I mean, uh, you know, I, can take, I, I always like to look at things from my personal sort of trajectory, but I mean, I wrote this book, Breaking Open the Head, that you mentioned back in 2002. And uh, when I wrote that book, I was researching it in the late 90s. Psychedelics were totally illegal. Since the 60s, since the early 70s, they hadn't allowed anyone to do any studies with human beings. Um, they were Schedule One, which is the most, uh, you know, the worst classifications. They were only drugs of abuse. And, um, yeah, all the, you know, in, in the 60s and 50s, they were considered uh, potentially, you know, great um, tools for understanding the human mind and unlocking human psychology and so on. But they got totally demonized. And um, then, you know, after my book came out and some other books came out, there began to be sort of like a cultural thaw. Like it could be that you could talk about psychedelics again a little bit. Ayahuasca became popular. Um, and uh, the sort of thaw continued to melt. And then suddenly um, we've had now this sort of psychedelic renaissance uh, where um, kind of I mean, MAPS, Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which is a nonprofit uh, in the US and the Beckley Foundation in the UK have been major um, kind of players in uh, the Hefter Institute in the US in kind of beginning to have psychedelics uh, reconsidered by society. And um, in that reconsideration, there's been a lot of studies which have shown that they actually have potentially great benefit for a range of uh, psychological issues. Um, I think Johns Hopkins did an early study on mushroom psilocybin for anxiety or specific compulsive disorder, uh, studies on depression, uh, terminally you know, anxiety and people with terminal illnesses about dying and so on. So seeing the success um, and also beginning to see changes in the regulatory aspects, uh, a lot of sort of entrepreneurial capitalists got very excited. Uh, I think, you know, festivals like Burning Man were also very important in this regard because you had people from the wealthy elites kind of meeting with the sort of West Coast hippies and so on and um, kind of uh, exploring psychedelics and shamanism and people go down to the Amazon and so on. It became sort of like a thing that people with resources um, began to get involved with. I ayahuasca tourism and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. Like peyote, ayahuasca, San Pedro, uh, Iboga, uh, which I did in Africa and so on. So um, sensing opportunity, uh, a lot of companies, like I know there are like hundreds of companies uh, in the space and uh, some of them are, you know, have a market cap of billions now. I think there's uh, Compass Pathways is one of the biggest ones. Some of them are, a lot of the investors are kind of Silicon Valley um, people, people from the PayPal mafia, like Peter so Thiel. People like Peter Till, yeah. Yeah, and so some of them are applying the same type of, um, you know, slightly predatory practices they've applied in other, you know, areas of their business to psychedelics. That includes kind of like um, trying to patent uh, you know, you, it could be that, uh, you know, you, I mean, obviously the original compounds are kind of in the public domain, like mushrooms and ayahuasca and LSD and so on. But you can potentially <clears throat> tweak the molecule slightly uh, and patent the, the tweak, or you can uh, patent a particular way of creating a synthetic synthesizing the molecule. 
Uh, and you could also try to patent as Columbus Pathways did, kind of uh, how the therapy is conducted, um, you know, whether the therapist, you know, touches the, the patient in a, in a friendly way or what type of furniture or music is used during the therapy. So there, there seems to be like a, a land grab uh, in the psychedelic uh, space right now. Uh, and also a lot of innovation. I mean, um, I think some great things are going to come out of it. Uh, new new discoveries, new compounds, um, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, there really has been a sea change. I mean, I, I talk to a lot of people now about uh, psychedelics. And I, I think especially with books by authors like Michael Pollan coming out, uh, there, there is a sea change on the conversation. I guess, I guess with regards to uh, companies like Compass Pathways, uh, what are the potential problems that come with these companies? Um, I guess a lot of it has to do with patents, but I think you, you view that as the tip of the iceberg. But what's the issue with the patent laws? Well, I mean, um, I, mean um, I think there are a lot of issues. I mean, some of them are, are more subtle. I mean, I mean, the patent issue is just, you know, whether, you know, a company should be able to control psychedelic experiences as they've controlled other areas of life, you know, like, um, um, you know, if somebody, if, you know, I mean, and the, the Compass situation was, was particularly egregious. So I think they maybe have not gotten the patents or backed down because there's like, if the therapist, you know, puts on certain types of music or has soft furniture, they, they wanted this to be covered by their patent. Um so that would mean that anybody else who was using psychedelics in a similar way, you know, would, would be potentially, you know, liable for legal damage, you know, to compass. Um, but I think in general, it's also kind of um, the um, the set and setting. You know, we know we know a lot about psychedelics that, you know, the context. And I think, I think sort of what happened historically was um, the whole thing with psychedelics was very stuck, you know, in the legal system and this cultural repression. Uh, maps began to gain a little traction, particularly with the MDMA uh, research into post-traumatic stress disorder. And then Johns Hopkins had the psilocybin studies and so on. And so there began to be the sense that the way for the way to bring psychedelics back into the cultural discourse, the mainstream, which was a hyper focus on them as uh, tools for therapy and for healing. Uh, and that particularly, if you look at the like Horizon Conference, they really don't let other subjects get discussed. Um, Kind of, it's all very scientific. It's almost like they made it as dry as possible. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I you know that wasn't even really the primary, you know, fascination uh, for me when I wrote Breaking Open the Head. I feel a lot of the stuff that I talked about in that book doesn't really get talked about now in the in the new psychedelic uh, culture so much. Um, everything from psychic and paranormal experiences. Um, to a sense of like uh, contacts or communion with other forms of intelligence that are outside of the human uh, intelligence. Um, yeah, I mean, um, you know, I think in the, in the 60s, they were beginning to register a huge amount of anomalous psychic material coming out of these experiences. And that was one reason why the doors were shut, um, shut on them in a way. So, yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, it, 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 it is what it is right now. I mean, I think... In general, it's positive. I mean, more and more people are becoming aware of the benefits of psychedelics. Um, you know, sometimes I even get concerned that some of the hidden downsides of psychedelics are not being discussed uh, enough. Because uh, I do know a lot of people who get very destabilized or become ungrounded or 
become very impulsive or have a, you know, sort of messianic, you know, kind of temporary messianic complex. There's a lot of, you know, negative things that can come from different types of psychedelic use. But I mean, you know, with the new psychedelic renaissance, there's also very much a focus on integration. Um, you know, people who are getting now training to do psychedelic integration. So, you know, once you have an experience, it's not like you should be left alone with that experience. You need somebody to sort of help you integrate it. But I guess, um, yeah, I mean, you know, to put it bluntly, I guess what I talked about in that piece, uh, you know, looking at the ecological crisis and the incredible level of social inequality and injustice in our society, you know, I, I feel that, um, you know, the, you know, one of the values of psychedelics is they can help inspire uh, more profound levels of, of social change uh, and um, kind of make us really think about what types of sy systemic changes are, are possible, which is what I tried to do in my 2016 book, How Soon Is Now, is kind of apply kind of uh, aspects of the perspective you get from psychedelics to kind of like um, issues of how we can under undertake like a systemic transformation. Uh, but with the contemporary psychedelic movement focused on medicalization, uh, it's almost like another, like an attempt to sort of, you know, you're going to be a higher functioning person. Um, you know, you'll, if you're an entrepreneur, you can have benefits for thinking about, you know, how to you know, make new products or market your products. So it's, it's a very, it's a very domesticated and kind of catalyzed approach to the psychedelic experience to fit it back in with an essential, you know, capitalist model. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I've seen that sometimes with um, people that are into microdosing, where they'll talk about um, how it makes them more productive. Everything is about the, it's it's about productivity um, for a lot of people. Uh, and I, I think that's very capitalist oriented, whereas there could be other uh, ways to use psychedelics, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, I mean, it's productivity. I mean, you know, it, it is tools for, you know, we do know that it's a great tool for creativity also. I mean, um, Imperial College has been doing um, a lot of brain scans of people on high dose psilocybin and LSD. And you can actually see that um, areas of the brain that are normally dormant start to light up. And then there's like new sort of patterns of communication between these areas of the brain that are normally dormant. So if, if you know, pro probably part of the basis of creativity is the ability to see um, kind of new connections, uh, make new connections, original connections, you know, it's really demonstrated in those in those brain scans how, how psychedelics would be very helpful for that. It's interesting. In, in your piece, you talk about um, one of the possible results of, um, you know, our current predatory corporate structure seeking to assimilate and control psychedelics for profits is that it could lead to a, a sort of short-term brave new world or a, or a brave new 1984 scenario. Maybe you could um, explain what you meant by that. I, I think you talk a little bit about um, creating temporary bliss states and how that, that could lead to issues and whatnot, and just the exploitative nature of the economy and how it could take advantage of psychedelics. Sure. I mean, um, now there's a lot of, you know, kind of, interest in looking at all these different psychedelic compounds and, and tweaking them a little bit. I mean, um, one of the great heroes of the modern psychedelic movement who I interviewed for Breaking Open the Head was Sasha Shulgin. He and his wife, Anne, published um, two huge books, Pical and Tikal. Um, and essentially, he was doing home laboratory research for decades on different compounds. And when he had created a new compound, he would invite a small group of friends over 
and they would try it, like starting at a very, very low dose and slowly raising the dose and then writing trip reports and so on. And, you know, I think the reason that he publicly released all of his um, data, including all the formula, you know, for making these molecules is he probably had a presentiment that something like this could happen. Um, and actually, I've heard some of the um, CEOs of these more capitalist companies being very angry at Shulgin in a way because all of those compounds are now in the public domain, so they can't patent them. Um, so that's very interesting. But I know, I think there was one company, it might have been MindMed, I can't remember, that was using artificial intelligence to kind of like try to map out all of the possible psychedelic compounds that haven't been found yet, uh, and then to sort of claim them, you know, as, as IP. Um, but yeah, but, you know, in, in the effort to um, find a marketable product, right? Because um, obviously for these mainstream companies, they're going to have to take it through the, the regulatory process and so on, which could take a number of years. Um, you know, there's going to be a tendency to find something that's, you know, it's maybe more like the the Soma from the book, you know, Brave New World, which was, you know, sort of in a way didn't have a very profound revealing effect, but sort of just made people sort of happy citizens of a dystopia, you know. So, yeah, it's a lot of power now that we're, you know, unleashing, you know, as, as you know, you know, when somebody's in a psychedelic state, they're particularly malleable. Um, you know, they can, their sort of thoughts can be, you know, kind of reconditioned or reprogrammed essentially. And yeah, I just think there's a lot of dangers in, um, giving that to people whose, um, whose, you know, motivations may not be clear or pure. Although I also think there are many, many people involved in the contemporary psychedelic movement or even working in these companies who really do have beautiful motivations and really believe that these are tools that can really help evolve humanity and, 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 uh, Awaken, awaken people on a large scale. Just a, a few more questions I had. Um, I guess I wanted to get into this ecological element more and your interest, I guess, in, I think, critiquing capitalism's sort of need for growth, the constant need for growth and your interest in things like degrowth and uh, ecological sustainability. How does that all connect to your work on psychedelics? Oh, great. That's a great question. I appreciate you asking that. So, um, you know, I, I believe that humanity always needs like a, um, a frontier, you know, like we need we need to have something that we're heading towards. And, um, you know, as we developed the kind of scientific method and the, you know, scientific materialist ideology and worldview and paradigm, um, the, the focus became entirely on, you know, material technologies, you know, material production, you know, consumption. And yeah, I mean, let's, you know, that has had, you know, some benefits, right? Like people live longer now. They have, um, you know, they're, they're you know, in, in, a, in advanced societies, they have much longer and healthier lives than they used to, you know, at a cost of, you know, other things, you know, kind of like uh, opportunities for like courage or, uh, you know, kind of a direct encounter with uh, the natural world and so on. Um, so, but if we're looking ahead, yeah, I mean, I mean, we can't really continue a, I mean, you know, my argument is that, you know, capitalism is a, a kind of a, a system that makes sense for an adolescent and immature stage of an of a intelligent species development. Um, it, it's like, um, it forces growth. I mean, it's, you know, money is issued to existence as debt, you know, so everybody has to 
you know, seek to um, fulfill the credit imperative, the debt imperative, um, and, um, you know, all the countries are in debt and so on. So, and, and you know, corporations are, if they're publicly traded, they, they're, they're, they're bound by fiduciary responsibility to maximize, you know, financial value for their shareholders. So they're also just forced into a growth based, you know, how can we maximize profit? How can we, you know, expand markets? You know, how can we, if we're, you know, it, it also leads you to act poorly environmentally because you need to take shortcuts. Like a company like British Petroleum, you know, ends up despoiling the Gulf of Mexico because uh, it's, you know, it's very expensive to do things properly and it's easier to corrupt uh, legislators and, and uh, you know, use deficient equipment and so on. So, um, so the, my my thesis is that yeah, so we we're come, we have to one way or the other either by going extinct or by awakening, we're coming to the end of this uh, growth based capitalist system, and um, we need to have a different idea or different or different concept for how society evolves. You know, if the if the, if the evolution is not towards you know more skyscrapers, more you know cool cities, you know flying cars, you know we'll still get some of that, I guess, but. You know, then where is the where is the evolution? And the evolution could be towards like the evolution of consciousness. Um, a book that I really love is called um, "The Psychedelic Future of the Mind" by Tom Roberts, and he kind of argues that instead of a technological singularity, we can think about a neuro singularity where we begin to use everything that we're learning about the uh, body mind body mind states um, and really uh, understanding there's like state specific knowledge in different in different states of consciousness or altered states. People can access different types of uh, information or types of knowledge, but this actually becomes like a science of the future. Uh, and then there's, you know, the psychedelics become part of this um, sort of uh, investigation of the inner domains of consciousness as an effort to, um, you know, emancipate humanity, um, you know, and, and liberate people to their full potential. Um, so, yeah, to me, it's completely connected uh, without a shift away from materialism, uh, we're doomed. Uh, capitalism is a growth-based system that can't continue. Uh, and uh, we can't end capitalism unless we have a new idea for where humanity could go. And, you know, building local utopias, um, connecting more deeply with our inner selves, uh, creative uh, liberation, uh, self-realization, you know, uh, the possibility of using psychedelics, um, you know, both for, you know, self-exploration and for, you know, group experiences and so on. I think, you know, this could be at the forefront of the future. Uh, so w one thing I wanted to ask you about, because I, I guess I've wondered about this when it comes to psychedelics and maybe I'm not coming, I don't want to come off as um, being against psychedelics because I'm not, but one of the issues I've sometimes had with proponents of psychedelia is that I think self-exploration is great, but I, I think it's not enough. Um, like, like, is there a point where self-exploration through psychedelics or, or this looking inward uh, that psychedelics can give us, is, is there a point where that can become uh, like solipsistic or disconnected from the social in a way that's negative? And is there a way to avoid that path? Oh yeah, I totally, totally, totally agree. That can become negative. Um, yeah, as I said before, psychedelics also have dangers that have maybe been downplayed in the current moment in the current Renaissance. I mean, um, um, uh, 
you know, basically, if you look at how indigenous cultures used uh, these types of um, visionary plant compounds and so on, uh, they use them in initiatory practices that also involve the elders in the community who would take an active role. So, you know, a young person would go through a visionary experience and the elder would guide them, you know, you know, hear their visions, you know, kind of even maybe situate them in the society and so on. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, I think that, as I said, this whole area of integration is going to become a bigger and bigger one if we're going to have a healthy psychedelic culture. But I, I used to be, you know, yeah, and I guess I still do. People just got very destabilized. Uh, and I think I was too, frankly. I think that I, I overused psychedelics um, for a number of years and um, it had negative effects. And now I'm much more balanced. But, you know, you, yeah, you can't, you can't learn without making mistakes. I mean, that's just part of life. Um, but I think, um, yeah, so, you know, the, the, we need, we need not just, you know, more use of psychedelics, but more scrupulous understanding and discernment about, you know, both the values and the dangers. Um, you know, I have a friend who, you know, is involved in the psychedelic, you know, kind of business world. And she's also been experimenting, exploring a lot. And I could see her becoming a little bit kind of, you know, a, a little ambiance of kind of megalomania, you know, kind of a messianic kind of like feeling that, you know, her purpose was to save the world. And I, I had that at one point, like, you know, 15 years ago. So as an elder who's gone through that, I hopefully can help her see that that's just a limited, like, yes, you have this, you know, this inflational experiences that can come from the substances, but then you have to kind of step back from that and just see that that's, you know, one of the many wormholes that, that these things open up. So, um, you know, but but for me, it's it's really about a, a different. Uh, there's another level of paradigm shift because um, I, you know, I and I've been writing about this a lot in in my uh, in my newsletter, um, which of course people can follow at DanielPinchback.substack.com. But um, it's uh, this idea that um, you know this idea that uh, consciousness is simply based on the brain um, is I think being displaced or made obsolete. By more of this understanding that quantum physics support of now this kind of philosophy of analytic or monistic idealism is uh, putting forward as a, as a very rational way of thinking about it, which is that actually it's more likely that consciousness is the foundation. It's like the ontological primitive. And um, um, yeah, so there, our brains are not creating consciousness. They're like transducers, you know, transmitters, receivers of, 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 of consciousness. And that consciousness can also be different forms and many other life forms and, you know, plants and animals and whales and so on. So, um, yeah, I think that, you know, flipping it around and, and taking this idealist perspective that consciousness is the, is the basis, which I believe that, you know, psychedelic experiences very much support that. Um, that becomes the basis for a really profound paradigm shift where a lot of what hermetic and esoteric traditions have been telling us for thousands of years turn out to be, you know, more accurate and truthful than the scientific, the reductive scientific materialist worldview. Um, and yeah, it's been interesting. I, you know, that's something that for me is, you know, very crucial, but it's also still a little bit outside of uh, the realm of where the, the, the movement is right now. I was just going to say briefly too, since I mentioned that, I think some people can get stuck in 
I, I don't know if I would call it psychedelic introspection or just looking inward, but there's the flip side of that is like, uh, you know, I, I know Terrence McKenna used to talk about how, you know, taking psychedelics in a very social environment uh, can can end up being very pro-social. Um, just like even people at a rave or taking it together um, in an initiation ceremony or something like that, there is a a way to socially use these these plants. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I mean, you know, I, I think the festival culture is uh, can be can be a great thing, you know. Yeah. So before we close out, uh, just two more things, I guess. The first is um, it's interesting. I, I don't think you're saying necessarily that the psychedelic corporations themselves are like um, malicious, but it does sound like you're saying that they're forced to conform to this logic of, you know, maximize the, the short-term financial profits. And that really is the core of the issue. Not so much uh, that the, the people working for these companies have malicious intent or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, some of them, you know, probably see the world through, you know, the lens that they've developed in business, you know, and, you know, they probably still see themselves doing a good thing, but they're also, you know, wanting to maximize profit and, um, you know, not even sacrifice a level of return uh, to have like a more ethical, you know, model for the company, for instance. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, and that's in the, in, you know, we've now seen the sort of collapse of the crypto industry, but, you know, the way our temporary capitalism has worked is, you know, you're not only supposed to get decent returns, but you need to get very, very high returns uh, to be a success, you know, in like the market driven economy. So unfortunately, I think some of these companies are looking to psychedelics to, to give them those types of returns. The last thing I wanted to talk about was uh, an interesting aspect of your article is talking about how we can deal with things like, for instance, climate change and, and the crises uh, caused by things like fossil fuels. Um, so what do you say to people that say, well, how, how can we uh, how can we expect it to go back to, you know, um, farming or, or completely change our way of life to deal with climate change? I think there's people that, that take this pessimistic view that you know we'll, we'll never stop living this way, uh, or we just can't. So, w why do you think those people are you know maybe maybe being too pessimistic, or maybe they're just flat out wrong? Um, why do you think it's eminently possible that we can uh, completely change the way we live our lives? Okay, that's a great question. I mean, um, I think so much in our human reality is about storytelling and about kind of um, kind of. Um, where we see, where we imagine, you know, something better or progress or something, you know, so, you know, over the last couple centuries, you had modernism and a huge amount of effort was exerted ideologically to move people from the countryside into the cities. It's like, oh, living in the country is boring, you know, move to the city, you'll be like an Uber driver, you'll work in marketing, it's a much more exciting life, you'll have cooler, you know, cooler friends, better food. I mean, that was like a 150 years of propaganda. Um, and, you know, is it so much better for most people? I mean, people who are living, you know, in poor neighborhoods and big cities that are some of them, are, a lot of them are like food deserts and so on, you know, couldn't we do better than that? You know, and, and yeah, I mean, if we look at the agricultural system, 
Uh, you know, the UN has talked about how topsoil depletion is one of the biggest problems facing humanity. Uh, um, you know, as well as um, loss of you know biodiversity and forests and so on. Um, you know, we know that um, if we shift from industrial agriculture to more like permaculture organic farming practices, that, you know, brings the CO2, the carbon back into the soil. It, it replenishes local ecosystems. There's a really nice movie called The Biggest Little Farm, which is a little bit like propaganda for this idea. Uh, but you see in six years an astonishing transformation of um, this whole area. Uh, and all these animals and insects start coming back, uh, you know, beavers and butterflies and, you know, foxes and all this stuff. So, um, yeah, so basically, you know, if, if people were to be re-imprinted with a new concept uh, that was actually better, uh, there's no reason they wouldn't go 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 toward that. I mean, you know, uh, people are just always looking for a better life. And they just don't, don't always know how to get there. And they've been told that one way of life is the only way. Um, you know, look at, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, automation, which is going to put a lot of people out of work, right? Like, you know, we almost have the self-driving cars now, and, you know, 3 million people in the U.S. are truck drivers. Like, it's the biggest, uh, career you can have if you don't have a, you know, college education or whatever. So what's being offered to all these people? Uh, you're just going to lay them off and then they're going to sit at home. You know, and, and, and the fact is that, you know, the, the tragic situation is that all the work that we need to be done isn't really getting done because it doesn't fit into capitalist equations. Uh, so, you know, whether it be like rooftop gardening or composting or re, you know, regenerating wetlands or replanting forests and so on. So, yeah, so once once again, you know, somehow or other, there has to be a general general realization that we don't actually have to go this one destructive direction that's not even really good anymore it's not really making people happy it's making people miserable i mean the mental health catastrophe is happening uh, everyone is like wrecked you know by the system which is just cannibalizing on people's psychologies and on, on people's capacities yeah you know, i was just gonna say really briefly it's it's interesting because i think i think we live in a, a very consumer-based society and we're told that you know you know, oh, we'll just buy more stuff. That'll make you happy. But I think what yeah. really makes us happy in the end is our social connections and, you know, just um, living living out our lives with other people in a community. Um, but, you know, it, it seems like the, the current system doesn't really promote that enough. Yeah. Yeah, the quality of relationship is what's going to make people happy. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you again, Daniel Pinchbeck, for coming on. Uh, parallax use how can my listeners keep up with your work um pinchbeck.io and you also have a sub stack anything else you want to promote honestly the sub stack is the way to go right now that's like i've been really enjoying it it's also yeah it's it's just like a really um it's a great medium for me i'm really enjoying it so that's daniel pinchbeck.substack.substack.com and other than that i'm on all the usual stuff like twitter i have a, I have a course platform liminal.news uh where i have like lectures and writing classes and stuff like that too Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Mike Swanson of Wall Street Window and Daniel Pinchbeck. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. 
And with that being said, Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.